0: It was it, it's such a mix of uh, stress and disappointment, and I definitely had some, you know, resentment towards Burton for a bit of just where am I going now? And is this sort of the end of this this time? You know, since I was twelve, that's all I could think about. I think at that time I was probably twenty one, and uh, it hurt, and I really didn't, I really didn't know what was going to happen next. I was. I was listening to what was available at Burton and not a lot was coming up and I started looking elsewhere too and Allison and I were together at that time too so she heard me go through a bit of it and we thought about you know do we go to Colorado where do we go next but
1: podcasting from Boulder Colorado This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. This episode of Baby Got Backstory is sponsored by Wild Story. Wait a second. I bet you're saying, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. Brands across the world are discovering that their overall strategic and verbal approach, also known as their brand story, is what glues them together and drives who and what they really are. Are you one of those brands that is taking advantage of this superpower? Are you finding that showing up consistently, both internally and externally, is a problem? Or maybe you can't tell your brand story in two to three minutes in a way that captures the interest of your employees and customers. Then get in touch with us, the team behind Wild Story. We can help. One of my favorite sayings about entrepreneurship is if you want to understand the entrepreneur, study the juvenile delinquent. The delinquent is saying with his actions, this sucks. I'm going to do my own thing. And since I never wanted to be a businessman, I needed a few good reasons to be one. I wish I came up with that quote myself, but that's from the legendary founder of Patagonia, Yvonne Chouinard, And we normally don't start this show off with a quote, but for today's guest, this quote says it all. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a passion for snowboarding, photography, and entrepreneurship positioned Mike Arts to travel the world, chase snow, and become one of the most successful photographers in the snow industry. And before we get into today's show, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen and absorb these amazing stories. I've been thinking a lot about why I do this, and possibly why you even listen. Sure, we love stories, and I think about that a lot, but it hit me like a lightning bolt while I was walking around New York City with my son just a couple weeks ago. And isn't that the way all epiphanies happen? Never at the desk or when the notebook is open and pen in hand, but strolling around and trying to explain to my son why swatches, yes, the watch, were once cool and why they're now cool again. But it hit me that stories have the power to locate ourselves in someone else's story. And that in itself creates empathy. This idea that they are like me. And what that allows is for us to change our mind. And when we change our mind, we change the world. Or another way to put it is change the world, change your mind. But the only way we can really change long held beliefs and ideas is to hear and relate to the stories of others in our office, town, country, and the world. Change our minds and we change the world. Now that's the power of stories and storytelling. Hey, and if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes. iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts, and ratings help us to build an audience, which then helps us to continue to produce this show. And lastly, this show is all about creating value for you, as well as opening up a dialogue. I realize I'm doing all the talking, but please, let's start the conversation. I am at Mark Gutman, M-A-R-C-G-U-T-M-A-N, on all social media channels. You can always send an email to podcast at wildstory.com with your thoughts and comments. We read and respond to everyone. And if you have any great ideas for guests, please let me know. All your suggestions are welcome. I really want to know who you'd like me to interview next. Today's guest is Mike Arts. You may not know his name, but if you like snow, skiing, and snowboarding, then you've most likely seen some of his photographs. He shot images for brands like Burton, Aspen, Spider, Heli Hansen, CMH Heli Skiing, Warren Miller, Transworld, Avalon River Cruisers, Levi's, Jeep, Airstream, and the list is just too long to mention. This episode is a special one for me, because I consider Mike Arts one of my very best friends. I feel lucky that at this stage in my life that I've been able to find a friend like Mike. And I remember the day we met several years ago. It was at his co-working space in Denver called Battery 621. We were hosting an entrepreneur organization event, just a simple lunch and learn where we go and someone tells me about their business. And he's he's telling me all about his businesses from the multimedia aspect of his company called The Public Works to the co-working space he had built at Battery 621. I thought I want to be friends with that guy. And I also think that was the day I committed to my first heli trip. Of course, Mike, like he does to everyone, talked me into it. And Mike has that way about him. An easygoing confidence that people want to be around and trust. And since that day on the rooftop at Battery 621, we've become fast friends. We've traveled the world together. Our families have vacationed together. And now, luckily, we're even doing a little work together. And while he's been involved with some of the biggest and most recognizable brands, not just in the snow industry, but the world, you'd never know it. One of my favorite memories is I gave him a call once about something unimportant and Mike picks up and is just chatting away and he says, hey, I've got to go. I'm on a mountain in Nepal. Or was it Iceland? Or was it Canada? You know, that's just the way Mike is. He always has time for his friends, always ready to pick up a call, never too far away even when he's halfway around the world. In the Japanese, well, they have this concept called Aikigai that means a reason for being. And the word Aikigai is usually used to indicate the source of value in one's life or the things that make one's life worthwhile. The word translated to English roughly means thing that you live for or the reason for which you wake up in the morning. And each individual's Aikigai is personal to them and specific to their lives, values, and beliefs. It reflects the inner self of an individual and expresses that faithfully while simultaneously creating a mental state in which the individual feels at ease. And if that's not the definition of Mike Arts, I don't know it is. Mike is also responsible for co-founding Denver's first co-working space, Battery 621, which is more of a curated work collective than what we've come to know as a co-working space. Battery 621 was just another of those what-if ideas that became a reality. Seems to happen a lot with Mike. Like, what if we rented out an entire mountain in Silverton, Colorado? What if we bought out a heli lodge in Canada? What if we took 50 of the coolest couples to Europe and took over a river cruise? What if? What if? There are a couple of crazy what-ifs in development right now, and I can't wait to see them become reality. And as you'll hear, Mike has somehow figured it out, found that magic formula of making a great living and doing the work he loves. Mike is generous, relaxed, and intense at the same time. He chases snow like he's independently wealthy and works at his job like he doesn't know where the next dollar or meal is coming from. Mike is a special person in my life, and I really cannot imagine what my life would be like without the synchronous events that somehow found us coming together. And so I'm so proud to say, and here's Mike Arts. Well, Mike, this is truly an honor. Uh, You and I are great friends and Oddly enough, it's been really hard to sit down and do this interview because we spend so much time together, and to actually sit down and and go through uh, your story has been a challenge, and we're sitting here in an Airstream in the back of Battery 621, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode, but I'm going to start off by reading a quote that I know you love and seems to describe your philosophy on life, and when I say life, I mean work, your personal life, your family, all of it. The master in the art of living makes little distinction between his work and his play, his labor and his leisure, his mind and his body, his education and his recreation, his love and his religion. He hardly knows which is which. He simply pursues his vision of excellence at whatever he does, leaving others to decide whether he is working or playing. To him, he is always doing both. What does that quote mean to you?
0: Ah, uh, Such a good one, right? Well, it's interesting to look at it for going forward but also going backwards uh looking back it's I feel pretty lucky that it it stands true to I think the way Frank and I have lived and the businesses that we've built um so word for word it's such a it's such a great quote to to reflect back on often and as you know we have um a shortened version of it hanging on the wall here at Battery and to look at it almost daily Above and beyond that, I think what's pretty cool is the first time I read it was in uh, Yvonne Chouinard's book, Let My People Go Surfing. So it makes so much sense coming from a guy like him. So it always makes me you know, think about Yvonne and Patagonia also. And then I think the other interesting thing with that quote is it's uh, really no one knows who first uh, wrote it if you look at the history of it. So it's interesting that it's such a good piece of work, but it's pretty unknown who the original author
1: was. Yeah. It's universal. And the reason I decided to open with that is I feel that it describes you quite, uh, quite well. And as we get into this a little bit today, um, you know, you have built a a life and a career around the things that you love. And a lot of times I think people don't know you or even that do know you will say that you're in constant state of play. Although we both know that you're you're also consistently working hard. And and sometimes it's hard to tell what's going on. And, And to me and to a lot of people, you're always doing both. And so when you think back to when you were when you were a child, when you were young, I mean, was this always a goal for you to have this life and career where you were working playing doing both at at any given moment i guess it was always a goal but it would have been hard to
0: really fathom how possible it could become Uh, you know i grew up with my dad being an entrepreneur and co-owning a private independent pharmacy in connecticut And my mom helped him too uh, and did a mix of other things, but she was involved with the business also. So I grew up watching my dad work work his ass off and somehow also finding a ton of time to always have to take us skiing and wakeboarding and all sorts of stuff. So I, I saw him do it through super, super hard work. I think what we've created kind of blurs the lines a little bit more, but it doesn't come without a ton of work and stress. Um, you just don't usually put that on Instagram so much.
1: So, so you talk about your dad and and he being an entrepreneur and, and some of the values that he instilled at you at a young age and growing up in Connecticut, you know, and Connecticut isn't really the hotbed of snowboarding, uh, for, for one thing, but you managed to even find joy and love for snowboarding in Connecticut. I mean, what were those early years like for you growing up in Connecticut? And and, and maybe the best place to start is, why don't you tell me like the first time you saw a snowboard? Hmm.
0: We grew up skiing at Stratton in Vermont the most. And, you know, Burton snowboard started just down the road. So Stratton and Bromley really were kind of some of the earliest mountains on the East Coast to start allowing snowboarding. So it was some of those early days, probably... I don't know 1986 1987 um starting to see boards on the mountain i think as soon as i did then i uh yeah just started looking saving shopping and i knew it was going to be burton and i hung my skis up at that point when i was 12.
1: and so what about it like when you saw it like why were you drawn to that why not just say hey you know those guys are a bunch of knuckle draggers not for me. I'm going to continue skiing. What, what really like drew you to it and excited you? And what was that feeling when, when you said, you know what, I'm going to learn to do this. I don't even
0: remember thinking twice about it. I think just saw it and wanted to do it and, you know, saved up and bought that first board. And I, I remember more the first day going to Stratton and trying to snowboard than maybe the decision to, to get that board. But, uh, the first day you still had to be certified at that point. So you had to pass a test and then they'd give you a photo ID that actually let you on the chairlifts and showed up that first day so gung-ho and you'd seen people do it or seen, you know, looking in the Burton catalogs or magazines, no internet at that time. But uh just showing up to Stratton that first day with like an Elite 150 and some Timberland work boots on, having to hike up and then proceeded to just get pounded. It was so hard. Somehow my buddy and I managed to pass the certification. And I remember the guy saying, all right, you're all doing pretty good. Just don't get on the chair and go right to the top. And, you know, of course, that's what we did. And then took a pounding the whole way down and
1: hasn't stopped since. Yeah, I remember those first days of snowboarding, too. And it was like it hurt and it was scary and it was hard. And there wasn't a lot of people around to even tell you what to do like, and, and to teach you. Why do you think you kept going? I mean, because so many people, I know a lot of people at that point in time that were like, this is crazy because it was kind of like, it was kind of coop town a little bit, right? Like it wasn't totally, you know, mainstream. Like you said, you had to get certified. I mean, even the ski resorts were pretty much scared of snowboarders. It was it was, it was hard to get snowboarding allowed on the mountain. Like, what, what? why did you keep going?
0: Well, I had a couple of buddies from Vernon, Connecticut who uh, joined in at the same time. You know, we could take the boards to even our small small hill at the middle school in our town or build a jump in the front yard. And I don't know. Somehow, I never got that into skateboarding when I was younger, but the snowboarding really clicked. And then it was wakeboarding. I think wakeboarding was kind of happening around the same time. Let's see, surfing. Probably started surfing after that. But, you know, I think we just had a couple of buddies and we just just stuck with it. Uh, I think the only time I went back to skis was... I think coming out to Colorado with my dad and we went, one of the places we went wasn't allowed snowboarding at that time. And until several years ago, I had never been back on skis again. So I don't know. I don't remember ever questioning it. I remember just getting so beat up and hitting my tailbone so hard on ice a few times. Like, I can remember going into eighth grade and having to ease my ass into a chair because it hurt so bad, but never really
1: thought about giving it up. Yeah. There's those, those pounds on the backside. When you catch an edge, it almost feels like you're just going to, I don't know. I don't know the eloquent way to say it, that you're just going to like crap yourself that it hurts so bad and and you don't know what happened and it happens so quick. You know, it's just like, boom. I can remember one flash of light and
0: crash under a chairlift at Waterville Valley in New Hampshire that I still, I still think I'm hurting from that one. On long motocross rides, I can still feel it in my tailbone. But you know the boards, everything was just harder than the boards were concave. Elite one hundred and fifty, like short tail, barely had steel edges at that point. And you know they were fine in powder, but when it came to riding Stratton, some days uh, it took a few more years
1: before I think carving kind of came into my life. Yeah, I had an elite with the uh, swallow tail and a metal fin on the bottom. I don't know if yours had that, but yeah. uh, that was kind of like the big tech to have a fin, which now just seems hilarious. Yeah, except maybe now the boards look
0: closer to those Elite one fifties again, but on a powder day.
1: Yeah, mine was great. It was uh fluorescent yellow with hot pink, kinda of splashes on Same it. Same board. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Yeah, and I had Sorels. I didn't have Timberlands, but uh Sorels with like fast tech buckles across the front and uh yeah. What yeah. wasn't wasn't too responsive, I'll tell you that. Cool. Well let's keep let's keep talking about your, your early years in Connecticut. So, what was that like? So, you, you know, you mentioned your dad. Um, he he was an entrepreneur and had a pharmacy, and and you're growing up, and you, you get interested in snowboarding. But you're living in Connecticut. So, like, how often are you, like, you go into the mountain?
0: We got up quite a bit. My dad was committed and still is committed. I mean, he might be getting more days on snow now than I do. Um, he loves skiing. Uh, so we went we went quite a bit uh, once I could start driving. I was going as much as I could on my own, kind of brokered a deal with my parents that if I maintained a B average, they let me miss a day of school a week to go up to Stratton, which uh, ironically, I probably did a lot better in school by missing 45 days my senior year. So there there was a lot of that going on. I was also trying to do every possible thing I could to try to figure out how to ride more and kind of get around the cost of either the equipment or the lift tickets. Uh, A buddy of mine and I started the Rockville High School Surf and Snowboard Club, which was such a joke, but uh, it enabled us to go to a local ski shop and kind of broker a deal. We definitely took care of ourselves a little bit better, I think. But it worked out for everyone. I think everyone else in the club got like 15% off at the store, but we got 50% off. And we also, through that, we'd call up ahead of time and set up group tickets at Stratton, save money that way. But getting into that ski shop kind of via the angle of the surf and snowboard club, I also started stalking the store owner quite a bit, Neil Ryan of Ryan Ski & Sport in East Hartford, Connecticut, no longer around. But I just harassed Neil and harassed him uh, until he finally hired me. And so I kind of, I guess that was my first official paycheck from the ski and snowboard industry. And I believe that was my junior year of high school through the shop. It helped me with gear. He kind of sponsored me a bit too. So he helped me out with some stuff that also helped with lift tickets through the shop, uh, getting free passes. So that, that was sort of the big first step in forcing my way into the snowboard industry.
1: Yeah, I I love the ski and and, was at the ski and snowboard club. Uh, I feel like things haven't changed that much. (laughs) You and I just ran a trip to Silverton Mountain with sixty plus adults, and part of that was, you know, finding a way that we could all go with our friends and making that happen, and and not too different from probably what you were doing in, in high school there when you were pushing so hard when you were like asking your parents. And, and I think your mother contends that maybe she didn't let you take a day off and, and doesn't remember that. But maybe I just don't think she wants to be judged on the uh, podcast airwaves as being a bad parent. But like, what was like, what was driving that? What was that in service of like, why were you so, you know, how bent on getting up to the mountain, you know, 45 day, days a year? I mean, was it did you think you were going to have a career in this? Or was it just because you just loved being on the mountain so much?
0: I think this is that part of you know, do you even call snowboarding a sport or, I mean, people are as passionate about hunting or, or so many things, right. That are hard to explain to other people how it drives you that much. I mean, I sat through middle school and high school, just sketching snowboarders and Burton logos on everything and just watching the videos. Uh, it was, it was all consuming and, uh, And then it just kept building from there. My parents uh, let me go to like a a weekend camp at Stratton that a bunch of the pro snowboarders put on at that time. It was the first, like Jake Burton came and visited the camp. That was the first time I met Jake. And, you know, it was one thing after another like that. I, I think early on too that, you know, Jake was more of my hero than say Craig Kelly or some of the athletes at the time. I think I was drawn to the... The entrepreneurial and the the business side of things, so that just kept growing over time. Between getting to meet some of those guys in the ski shop and that kind of thing,
1: yeah, that that's super interesting about Jake and Burton. And so, from from a very early age, I mean, the uh, I just kind of want to digress and have like a little brand conversation. The the Burton brand really spoke to you, and it really said something. And for lack of of better word, I mean, it was your tribe, and you set out to. To join that tribe and be a part of it, like what was it about Burton specifically? Because there there were other brands at that time, right, that were coming up and doing things. Like what about it? What about Burton was was so compelling to you?
0: There were other brands at the time, probably Sims and Barfoot, were standing out the most. But on the East Coast, I think Burton just owned it. It was probably the. Plus being at Stratton, everyone I was probably seeing in those early days riding and riding well were probably all Burton employees and probably some of the people that I got to go work with later on. So Burton just, I think, owned that zone. We they had their um factory in the time. I better not mess this up now, but in Londonderry, Vermont, just down the road from Stratton. But, you know, early I can remember the beginning of each season just calling the showroom and you call the showroom and you're like, are the new boards out? And the new boards out. And it was Emmett, who I went on to work for later, and uh, Mike Levecchia running the shop. And I bet they, you know, they probably were getting harassed by a thousand kids like me. But as soon as the new gear would come out, you know, I'd road trip up with my parents, September, October, whatever, go to the factory, check out everything new, to talk to those guys, and you're kind of right there where the stuff's being built. So, I, I had this early connection to Burton, and it only grew stronger because of the the local presence and the strong presence
1: yeah, and so you're in high school. You're you're getting some decent grades because uh, snowboarding's fueling your attention level, and you're getting out on the hill. You're making some connections with Burton, and but you know at, at this point it sounds like you know you have some buddies at Burton. Uh, you have you know the job with with Neil Ryan, if I got that right. And take take me from there. What's going on? So the
0: first the first year at Ryan Skiing Sport, I remember my first day at work. Showing up, I was psyched you know, go after high school, drive my Pontiac Sunbird over to East Harkford. And I think I spent the whole day, I just got put in the back room and they're like, all right, all these ski poles came in. They all need baskets on them. And uh, I remember that being my first day in the ski shop and and I was psyched about it, but um, I just slowly, slowly tried to chisel my way out of the back room. And what would happen is I'd hear someone come into the into the shop and ask about snowboards and I could hear all the ski guys, you know, they did a good job, but eventually I'd kind of wiggle my way out. And if there was a snowboard customer, I'd end up talking to them. Then they started to allow me out of the back a little bit more to handle that. But by the end of the year, uh, Neil took me to my first trade show. It was like a regional show. It might've been in Providence or an island. I don't really even remember, but he he gave me a budget and told me, you know, to figure out the snowboard buy for the year. And I sat with Tim Sternberg, who was the Burton rep at the time. And, you know, it's the rep's job to really help figure out the right mix for the shop. So Tim's a good guy. I'm sure he did most of the heavy lifting, but I got to be part of it. And actually, when we were just planning the Silverton trip, reconnected with Tim. And at that time, he told me that I was the only uh, the only buyer he ever dealt with that was still in high school, which was kind of a cool thing to hear all these years later. Yeah, so how old were you? Like uh, were you a- That was probably my... I want to say... It might have been my senior year in high school, but it was still high school, yeah,
1: and what was the budget you were given? do you remember uh i I feel like it was a hundred thousand dollars or something like that i mean that that's crazy like i, I couldn't even imagine being given like a hundred thousand dollars in high school and given the responsibility i mean, did that phase you at all? Or were you thinking this is crazy, or did you just kind of fit right into that role i mean
0: it's it's a blur at this point, but I th- I think why it's not that hard is cuz you sit with a guy, sit with a guy like Tim, he knows what the shop bought the year before. We know what's still on hand and from there you're, you know, you're figuring out the new assortment from Burton and what stuff looks like it's going to work well for the customers of that store. So I don't remember it being that hard. I I do remember it being fun to go around and look at some other brands and Pick up five boards from a different company and five boards here because you know we didn't want just Burton. Though at that time it was probably eighty or ninety percent of the order, but no, Tim was Tim was so good and so Tim really became a, a serious mentor to me at the beginning. He started inviting me to go to on snow demos and you know we'd go and turn screws and help out at those things. He took me on a trip up to Tuckerman's Ravine, which is a Kind of a hike in backcountry zone in new hampshire classic classic backcountry ski zone and you know tim took me up there and we ended up being with some of the like biggest kind of the, the big wigs of burden at that time like the head of design jake was also on that trip i just found some video footage and put a little thing together we'll have to put a link into the podcast from that trip but i don't know the several guys that were up there are, you know, most of them are still super powerful forces in the industry. Paul Maravich was there who went on to start Rome snowboards. And so Tim, Tim really, uh, took me under his wing and he helped open a lot of doors for me.
1: Yeah. And so you, you mentioned something else. And so let's kind of rewind a little bit and go back because I, I believe that while you're developing this passion for snowboarding, you have another passion that's starting to develop and bubble up. And you mentioned that you have some video from Tuckerman's. And so you're in high school and you're taking video. And so, you know, that's what your profession is today. And, uh, you know, video photography stills and and shooting a lot of, uh, you know, snow sports and as well as some other things. Like when did the interest, at least in photography, start?
0: You know, I I tried to think about, all of this stuff quite a bit coming into this podcast and um, also recently did one with Mark Sullivan for the snowboard project. is a great other podcast series. And what hit me is the sort of the trifecta in my life has been photography kind of entrepreneurial business and travel. And those, those three things all seem to go back As far as I can remember, my dad was really into shooting photos. He had a lot of gear. He shot through high school um, himself. So, when I started getting into that in high school, we built a darkroom at home. So, that's around the same time I was really getting heavily into snowboarding. I was also shooting a lot. And we'd go up to Stratton. I'd shoot. I'd get home. I'd process film in my basement and print photos and take them to my buddies the next day. And also that desire to go further and find better mountains and cool places and deeper snow, like all of that, uh, started around then. And it's somehow I've been lucky that it's still all three of those things are a big part
1: of my life. Yeah. And so, you know, now it's really common, you know, and we, we, we try to find what our calling is or what we're meant to do is we kind of do the Venn diagram of like, all right, I like photography and I like snow sports and I like travel and it all overlaps. What can I do? And we, we then go off and decide to do something or invent a career or whatever. But back then, were you even thinking like this, or were you just doing this stuff organically because you loved it, and it was just fitting in naturally, or did you have an eye? I mean, because you've mentioned several times that uh, the entrepreneurs in your life were really this this guiding light, this thing that intrigued you. And so you were at least aware of that at the time. And it even sounds like, you know, back with, you know, Neil at the shop, I mean, there's all this entrepreneurial activity. So are you thinking, Hey, I can take these three things and make it, or is it just like, Hey, I'm going to chase this stuff for, you know, the best I can and and see what happens. Uh, It definitely came in segments.
0: And I think the first major thing was so, uh, I, I don't know why I can't remember the name of this uh, snowboard film that Burton put out, but a bunch of it was shot in New Zealand. I, I must have seen it my sophomore year because it's all I could think about were these these shots from New Zealand of, you know, the riders up on the snow and looking down into these lush green valleys with blue lakes. And so, around that time, sophomore year, uh, my best friend and I started saving money and kind of said, we're going to Australia and New Zealand right when we graduate. And I... I'm sure a lot of people didn't expect us to actually do that, but I saved 10% of, in those early days, I was working at TCBY Yogurt. And so I was putting like 10% of every paycheck into a, I opened a separate savings account. I can remember, you know, doing the math and putting like $18 at a time And But we graduated and we left. And uh, when all our friends were heading off to college, we left with just backpacks and landed in Canes, New, Canes, uh, Australia. And, without even bullshitting, we walked out to the highway and decided whether to go north or south. We had zero plan and we were in probably super over our head. So that, that really lit off the travel part. Um, I came back from going down the coast of Australia and New Zealand on that trip, went back to, uh, Ski and sport for the Connecticut winter, saved up again, and then went back to New Zealand and, uh, you know, June, July, August, and spent those months down there snowboarding. Um, and it was that year I took off after high school, you know, I was still working at Ryan's. I traveled twice to New Zealand. Tim was still really involving me in a bunch of stuff. It was during that year of travel where I decided that my like number one focus was to go work for Burton. And... So I was pursuing that, and I also applied to University of Vermont for business school since it was right in the same place. And uh, yeah, it was it was really the chase of working for Burton that uh, led me to UVM for business school. So it kind of went snowboarding, travel, then more business school, getting the job at Burton, and uh, photography didn't come into it for quite a bit a while after that.
1: Yeah. And as a interesting point, I also worked at TCBY. I think at probably the exact same time. So my wife, (laughs) a lot of (laughs) TCBYers in our, in our, in our realm. And this mine was in Troy, Michigan, and it was great. And I remember, uh, hooking all my friends up with massive servings of Froyo and then looking to the person who was like, behind them getting their, their serving that was like, you know, a 10th the size with the, like the frowny face. I still have trouble paying for frozen yogurt. Yeah. It was, it was serious currency back in high school. We traded also with the dudes that worked at Wendy's, like we'd have a a good barter system going. And, uh, that's one thing that we might be able to talk about too, is your, (laughs) your take on bartering. Cause I know you've, uh, learned the art of bartering quite well, but so here you are, like you kind of fast forwarded though. Like I'm thinking, you know, so were your parents at all saying, Mike, like, what's going on, or like, are you going to do anything, or were they just totally supportive? Like, you're happy working at the snowboard store, and we don't know what's happening. You know, I know my parents; they were pretty mellow, but like, they had a plan for me, right? Yeah. They were like, you're going to go to school, and you're going to do this. I always should call my mom and ask her. I'm not sure what her take would be at this point in time, but
0: when I decided to take the year off after high school, the one thing they asked me to do was have a backup plan. So I did apply to University of Vermont. I mean, uh, sorry, University of Utah at that time and got accepted. And that was a backup plan. Um, But I mean, I think they saw that I I was working really hard and chasing stuff and maybe just didn't know exactly what. They, They were very supportive in me taking the year off, which, you know, I'm really thankful that they were because if I'd gone straight to college after high school, I don't, think I would have been as put together and as focused as I was after not, not only just traveling on my own for a year, but having that time to, to really think about what I wanted to do, which in my head became like 100% clear that I wanted to go to Vermont and work for Burden. So that, that time helped me out a bunch. Um, I think by the time I got through that year, yeah, th- they saw that I was just, you know chasing chasing UVM and working too. So I'm sure they were more worried than they ever maybe let me see. I think I'd be a lot more stressed as a parent looking back at myself than they appeared to be at that time.
1: Yeah. My guess is too, that, you know, knowing you, that you have this like crazy strong work ethic and I'm sure they saw that whether it was, you know, working at the shop or going on adventures, or even following your you know passion or hobby of photography and video, right? That you'd come back and you just work. I mean, that's one thing I've always personally admired about you is you just have this like, you know, everyone thinks you're off just playing or chasing powder, and that is half the story. That is true. That's not a, a false fact. But uh, there is this side of you that's like this insane work ethic and you know really committed to to getting things done and 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 also honoring your work commitments, which is always you know you, you never go chase snow or go chase an adventure, uh, at the risk of like not honoring a work commitment. And so, um, did they sense that? Do you know where that even came from? Was that something that, you know, you got from your, from your father?
0: I I think there's probably some extra chromosome in my German background, but I saw it. I saw it in my grandfather. He wasn't a guy who ever just sat around. Um, even when he was retired, he, he had a cottage on the lake and we'd go there and he'd, be under the cottage digging out the foundation by hand and rebuilding the pillars or whatever. He, I I never saw him just kick back and sit still. My dad was always the same way. And I don't know if that's learned or, you know, genetics or whatever, but I can see it in my kids now. So I I think it's passed along. Like the work ethic is maybe it's passed and maybe it's also sort of demanded and expected. Right. I mean, you can look at certain cultures, like, (laughs) Whatever. You can joke, right? But I mean, most of the time you meet like someone who's South Korean and they'll tell you their parents were like never going to let them not be completely successful. So maybe we had a bit of
1: that too. Yeah. And so you're on this path to success and you're at UVM and I just imagine you're going to class and not snowboarding. And what are you doing? So like, how did you get to Burton and uh, how did that all shape up? Uh, Once again, I think I
0: always seem to do better when I'm a bit overloaded. So I started at UVM going to uh, uh, business school at the same time I was working at Burton. And they have, a, they have a retail showroom, which was super helpful for me because it was open 8 to 8, 7 days a week. So I, pr- I worked pretty close to full time in the shop and carried a full class load, which I would stack on... Like say Tuesdays or Thursdays, whatever I could do to make it possible to work. But I was probably also snowboarding, I don't know, three four days a week. So it was it was nonstop. One of the great things working at Burton, even being considered a part time employee, was our passes were provided. So getting a pass to Stowe at that time, I mean, it probably meant so much more to me as a, you know, a college student than if you're you know full time making a full salary at Burton. So some of those benefits were uh, super helpful to me. So we were riding Sugarbush and Stowe all the time. I lucked out and had a roommate freshman year too, who was also super into riding. I guess a lot of people at UVMR, like it was never that hard to find people to go charge to the mountain for half a day or whatever. Um, So it it helped me to kind of maybe stay out of as much trouble as maybe I would have got into. To be that busy. I know when it would get towards the end of the school year, Burton would slow down. Maybe I wasn't working. I felt like the more free time I had, the more I screwed off and had a harder time staying focused on school. So it it was a nice combo. And uh, somewhere in the first couple of years, I got a promotion to being the assistant manager of the showroom. And then my senior year in college, I took a promotion being the global sales and marketing manager for for RED, which was a whole category of uh, the helmets and accessories and everything for Burton. So it was cool. That was my senior year. I missed uh, walking in graduation because I was presenting to Burton's global sales force in, uh, in Austria. And uh, it ended up taking me, I don't know, another 5 or 6 years to finish my last 2 classes from UVM. That was one thing my parents did push me on. I think I was down in one last class, and I heard a lot of like, "Could you please just get that diploma?" And me saying, like, "hasn't really gotten my way yet, that I don't have it
1: <laughs> that's That's so great, and it's like, you know, I, I want to point out it to me, it sounds like too, that you weren't working because you had to. You were really working because you wanted to. I mean, there was something, I mean, were you paying your own way through school or were you, was, was working at Burton really this like extension of, of aspiration and just the pure love of the sport and and attaining the goal that you had set, you know, so many years before?
0: Yeah, that's, it's a really good point. I was very lucky that my parents were, you know, covering the, you know, the majority of the school costs, you know, because I was working, I was able to have a car up at UVM, even as a freshman, so I was working hard to cover a lot of my own expenses. Um, my Pontiac Sunbird died that first year. And I, I remember leasing a a Volkswagen Jetta, I think my freshman year. And that, that seemed like a huge decision. I can still remember that $299 payment per month and insurance and all that other kind of stuff and gas getting back and forth to the mountain. So I, I was working really hard for financial reasons, but mostly for the the more fun side. I mean, I I really, I feel for people that have a lot of school debt and that kind of thing. And I was very lucky that my, my
1: parents were able to take care of that part for me. Well, and you kind of, you know, glossed over probably like three or four years there, maybe three years, but, you know, you start working in the, in the, in the retail showroom and that was the flagship showroom. That's where, you know, that was the place to be in retail at Burton. Um, you work your way up. Like how do you, all of a sudden as a, were you a junior or senior in college when you started working at Red? Uh, senior year, I believe. Yeah. 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 How, how do you all of a sudden get this opportunity to head up a product line at Burton? Burton at that time, uh,
0: maybe there were 300 people. Uh, Burton had moved up to Burlington, Vermont. And uh, so, I mean, it's like a bigger company, but at the same time, you know, most people working in the store was awesome because it was very expected that we were, you know, the eyes and ears of the whole company, we're just down the hall from all the people designing the product, salespeople, customer service, dealer service. You know, it was such a great tight knit company that we'd have people road trip in from so far away, like I used to as a kid. People come from Canada, people come far from far away to come visit Burton. And we would pick up on a lot of that data and pass it on to all the product managers. And so there was a lot of actual, you know, business related reasons that we got to know other people in the company, but you're also snowboarding with everyone, going to parties with everyone. Um, I mean, that place was, it was like family there. So by the time that opportunity came along, you know, I, I, I think like a lot of good companies, they look internal too. So when that opportunity came up,
1: it got spread around internally. And I think my name got put into the mix. That's so great. And so you're, you're working on that project. I mean, did you get over your skis at all on that one? I mean, it seems like a really big responsibility and a really big job for someone who doesn't sound like they had a whole lot of like real experience in managing a product. Yeah. You know,
0: you think business school would have you all sorts of ready for everything, but I, I still, I give Burton so much credit for my education and I think UVM helped supplement that. I took that job for red and, yeah the what how it was explained to me and what became the reality of what was needed out of that position were two very different things i think what was explained to me to be the person out in the field um working with the pro athletes and working with snowboard camps and all that kind of stuff i i had that but the part that was oh dealing with like global forecasts and orders and dealing with inventory that hadn't sold and where is that going to go the the bigger, bigger side of the job, I was uh way over the front of my snowboard. And then so what happened? <laughs> yeah, I think I basically got like the old sit-down that things just weren't working out quite well enough. And uh that, you know, a great, great guy with the name of Chris Mask was being brought in to kind of take that over. And Chris was awesome, uh veteran, veteran industry guy. He was in early with original sin snowboards that think he helped build that whole company and most people don't even probably know that brand anymore but chris came in and took over and that was sort of the end of my time with red though i didn't really have a next plan presented to me or i didn't know what i was gonna do so so you're like freaking
1: out like because i mean you're Right now you're in like, you know, you you ascended to this amazing position. I'm sure that you were like, holy crap, I am the shit, right? Like I'm Mm -hmm. managing a product. I'm kind of hitting everything. I'm young. I'm in this great position. And I've had this happen myself before where it's like, bam, a little humbling experience. I mean, what are you thinking at that moment?
0: It was such a mix of uh, stress and disappointment. And I definitely had some, you know, resentment towards Burton for a bit of just where am I going now and is this sort of the end of this this time you know since I was 12 that's all I could think about I think at that time I was probably 21 and uh it hurt and I really didn't I really didn't know what was going to happen next I was I was listening to what was available at Burton and not a lot was coming up and I started looking elsewhere too and Allison and I were together at that time too so She heard me go through a bit of it and we thought about, you know, do we go to Colorado? Where do we go next? But I I really wish I could remember how long it was that I sort of sat in the, uh, I don't even know what you call it, the doldrums there of, uh, I'd go to work at Burton, but I really had no job. And I just kind of sit there and try to figure out what I was going to do next. Or if they were going to just ask me not to come back someday. (laughs) (laughs)
1: that's so great just just keep showing up until they tell you not to so then it's like a office
0: space right
1: (laughs) (laughs) put you in the basement with the stapler (laughs) so then how'd you get out of that what what happened
0: well i'm glad you got to meet maddie swanson at uh silverton because i love that there's just certain people and random things that happen in life that completely change your course and uh I i was at a party one night bunch of us from Burton and I think I was just talking to Maddie and told him that I, I figured I was out of there that you know the jobs i had heard that might be available were not appealing at all and I was just explaining to Maddie that I was probably going to move on and look for something else and he, he was just so calm and he just said to me like you know just give it a couple days and uh, sure enough he left uh he went to Oakley and and Maddie had this uh this awesome job that was created basically to travel with Terrier, who was, you know by far the, the Michael Jordan of snowboarding. And so Maddie's job was created just to, to be where Terrier was and to just be there and help him in any possible way he could. So Maddie left, and I got that job. And when I got that job, it was 1998 thereabouts, because it was the first year that snowboarding was going to the Olympics. So my position of traveling with the team became less focused just about Terrier, um, and more about, um, the half pipe riders and the athletes that were competing to go to the first Olympics in Nagano in 1998. And yeah, thank you, Maddie, for quitting and going to Oakley and remaining a great friend to this day, because who the hell knows what would have, what would have happened if he hadn't left.
1: Yeah, and you're working with uh, one of our former guests we've had on the show, Ross Powers, and uh, he was also there and one of the riders. And, you know, so y- you've spun out of this like awful situation, washed up at 21, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> life's over. And, and and you've all of a sudden find yourself traveling the world with, you know, the Michael Jordan Terrier of snowboarding. You're working with Ross. I mean, like, this is crazy. And like, how are you providing value to them at the time? I mean, what was your mindset and what are you trying to do to be a part of the team?
0: So when I, when I switched that job, it was under JG, John Gert, who's uh, he's, he's worked at Burton probably about as long as anyone. Maybe, I don't know, maybe only Jake has more seniority at this time. Uh, JG is you know, headboard tester and just amazing. Knows more about snowboarding than just about anyone else. So I went in working under JG and hard goods and my role was really to provide the best service possible to the pro athletes while also filtering all that information and data from what was happening out on the the mountain back to Burton. So it had some similarities to my time in the showroom, except now I got to be out all over the world with the athletes and um, yeah, I mean who even knew a job like that existed and it really didn't i lucked out that it was somewhat created and i was in the right time right place and you know i'd like to think i worked hard and you know i had a reputation at burton too but i i I approached that job as just uh, i'm going to be the best possible at this and jg taught me a ton about boards tuning whatever chris mask it was so awesome that he was there and he was you know red was all the tuning stuff So, I mean, he, he knocked me out of my previous position, but he also became my mentor of, uh, he he was such an amazing board tuner and he, super tech guy, a guy, Chris Doyle at Burton at the time too. Also he'd come from grind, right? So he'd come from the tuning side of things. Um, all these people just, I just tried to absorb every ounce of what I could learn from them. And I just, when I traveled, I, I traveled with, I carried so much stuff, but it was tools, extra parts, extra boards. And when we were at any of these events, my goal was always to be the the first one out and the last one up there. And I wanted the athletes to... I just wanted them to always know that I was there and that I was helping them to be better. And if they had an issue, that we could handle it quickly. And yeah, it was awesome. And a lot of stuff at that time broke. I mean, we it was like pit crew. Someone would break a binding midway down a run at X Games or something like that and... I would usually know, like you'd see what happened or whatever. And by the time they got to the top, we'd have stuff ready and I'd swap it out. And yeah, it was, it was good times.
1: Yeah. And when you say athletes, I mean, it wasn't just your athletes, right? You were helping to support anyone that had a binding issue or, or something of that nature.
0: Yeah, for sure. We, we, I mean, the goal was definitely to take care of the Burton athletes the most, but at that time, you know, m- the majority of people were riding in Burton bindings, uh, boards and other stuff varied a lot, but most people were riding in Burton bindings, so we were fixing stuff for all sorts of people. And there were some awesome riders out there, too, that were, you know, just p- pushing the sport and super nice people. And when someone like Barrett Christie
1: asks you if you can help her out with her board a bit, like, not saying no. <laughs> <laughs> Such a nice guy. <laughs> Everything for the sport. So, you know, which leads me to think, like, here you are. Like, Was there any point where you thought that you'd be a professional rider? No, no. And why? (laughs) I don't know. And and why? You know, at what point? I mean, you know, you're you had at least at some point think that there was something in terms of writing, maybe in high school or as you were, you know, um, progressing. But, you know, you seem very comfortable. And I think that a lot of people could also see, you know, you could also tell the story that. You know, you got this job is basically, you know, carry all the crap up the hill, you know, be the ski valet, but you really embraced it and saw it as a position where you could add a ton of value and be a part of the team. And, and I, and I really, you know, I'm drawn to this idea of like, Hey, I, I don't care what the job is. I'm just going to be the best at that, whatever that is. And, you know, so you were just happy to be a part of the team or there was no point that you ever wanted to, to be on the snow. In high school, I raced a bit.
0: And, you know, Neil Ryan helped me out. I think like sponsorship meant that he gave me a jacket that we put the Ryan's Skiing Sport logo on. I think I might still have it. I hope I do. Um, And I think he listed me as a full-time employee so I could get free ski passes. It really didn't cost him much. But, you know, I'd go up Stratton or whatever. And if there was a race, you'd maybe get to check out the course and then you'd wait and wait and wait and take your run and then wait and wait and wait and take a run I hated that part. If I was going to drive two and a half hours up to Vermont, I just wanted to ride. And, you know, the few races I did, it's not like I was in the top 10 or whatever. In the freestyle side of things, I just, I was never on track to be a professional athlete on the freestyle side of things. If free riding even existed at that time, I don't know. Maybe I would have chased it a bit harder, but I just think I learned early on by going down the, Working path in the industry, I got to have a lot of the same benefits that the professional riders were kind of living and getting, but on a, on a different track. So I was getting a you know, I was getting to travel with those guys, but my own way of doing it, and probably riding more. I ran all the summer operations for Burton a couple summers at Hood, and those years I think it was probably two or three years I was probably on mountain two hundred days a year. So. Yeah. It, it always worked for me to go the, the working path. And I think the duration of ability to do that is a bit longer than being a pro rider too.
1: Yeah. And so you're at Nagano. What was that position called again? My job? Yeah.
0: I don't know. Team it might've re- been team technician or I don't know if it was team coordinator. I felt lucky that it wasn't team manager at that time. Um, there were some great people doing that, Vin and Bruno and you know, that's a hard job because they're they're managing the careers of people that are maybe only 16 or 17 years old and having to make hard decisions, like cutting people or signing other people. For those three years at Burton, I was lucky. I was just out there purely to help. And I didn't ever have to be the bad guy.
1: It was, it was nice. It's a good position to be in. And so you did that for a while. Uh, and when did that come to an end and why?
0: So I think I did about three full seasons. And It was a really hard decision to leave um a couple different things led to it the job had changed a bit it had shifted into the marketing department from hard goods i was no longer working for jg and i'll just say that it wasn't the same working for g was all time so there was some um, maybe non-alignment with my new boss Uh, I started shooting a lot more. I was going on all the big Burton photo shoots, helping with gear and stuff. But I started taking my camera and shooting more. And some of the, the pro photographers at the time started giving me really nice props on the stuff I shared with them and showed them. And at the same time, the internet started becoming much more prevalent. So while I was traveling for Burton, I was able to Uh, You know, capture photos and write stories. And I was uh, freelancing that for some of the different online entities. So the whole mix of those things. And I started really thinking about leaving Burton for a while. But then I I got a job offer from a multimedia company out in Irvine, California. And I, I finally just took a big chance and took that job and left left burton with a big fear that i was uh i was walking away from maybe the the best job i'd ever had in my life but yep packed up and went to irvine
1: <laughs> and we'll get to that in a second but how how did you know that that was the right decision i mean you 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 just alluded to it ever since you were 12, you had had your sights on Burton, you're doing, you know, amazing things, you have this opportunity with the red line, you are, you know, traveling as a team tech all around the world, going to the Olympics, doing these things that I, I'm sure that you probably never even thought were possible. And it, it's like your first um, family. It's it, it's something that, it, how do you know it's the right time to leave? Because I imagine that had to be really, really difficult
0: should have journaled more at the time. I don't know, I think 20 years and a couple of head injuries and some malted beverages have happened between now and then. But, um, you know, I know it was, it was a hard, hard decision and it, I I felt like it took me well over a year to make the decision to leave. It was a combo that I was losing a little bit of my total stoke for the job and for Burton, just, just some of those challenges I was having with, what what the job had turned into. And I think you've heard me say this before, but I, I read the book The Alchemist, like, I don't even know, three, four times in a row. And I don't know, something just finally clicked that and I think I think part of it was that entrepreneurial spirit. It was really hitting me that I felt like if I didn't make a move and and walk away at that point, that I probably would have stayed forever and climbed the probably tried to climb the ladder at Burton. Which would have been would have been interesting also because so so it was really hard. I wasn't in a I wasn't in a bad position by any means. I definitely had that thought of, you know, I'm basically just traveling and having a blast. I mean, I was probably growing up a little bit and it just seemed like it seemed like it was time to to take this opportunity. A big part, I think, was because it was a media company. It was going to give me that chance to at that point get more serious about the photo video side of things that that helped a lot.
1: Yeah. And you kind of glossed over that a little bit that, you know, you had this opportunity at Burton. I mean, do you remember any of the photographers there that were given or one in particular that was giving you props or that really gave you the, the confidence that maybe you could add this to part of your profession? You know,
0: those Burton shoots and they, they probably still are, I don't know all the details anymore, but the Burton shoots at that time were legendary, you know, the best filmers in the world, the best photographers. So Jeff Curtis and Dean Blotto gray, um, Mark Gallup, Trevor Graves. I mean, all these guys are still just total legends in the sport. So, I got to be up on the hill and watch them work. And I seem to remember Burton would do a slideshow. I mean, at this time, you know, we were shooting film. There were no pixels. There was grains of film. But they would do a slideshow at the end and we'd done a shoot in Chile. And a, a couple of my slides got pulled out and put into that slideshow. And you know, might've only been four shots or something, but to sit there and watch all this like amazing photography and have some of those guys just say, nice shot. That might've been all they said. And they might've just been blowing smoke up my ass, but it it had a lasting effect on me. And yeah. So that that's kind of what happened.
1: I mean, do you think that's the moment where you really thought like, Hey, like I can add this to what I'm doing and, you know, make a run at this as a, as a broader career. And, and, and that's why you went to Irvine.
0: Well, I had my first published photo in Transworld magazine from a photo I took at the Burton Mount Hood house. It was like just ran in the little tiny type news section in the back of Transworld. It was a Japanese snowboarder doing a table dance in boxer shorts. I think I got paid 50 bucks for it. Um, I shot that during my time at Burton. So, I, I mean, that, that was this weird moment of someone's going to pay me anything for you know, taking a photo. But mostly I'd say it was getting some of the confidence that my photos and words had value and were going to use on some of the online portals and then getting an offer from Blue Torch, which was one of those. And you know, Blue Torch was interesting because they were doing um web but also print and had T V time. So they were going after this sort of full multimedia mix and they offered me A job as snowboard editor. So that was a big change from being at Burton more on the hard goods, marketing, sports marketing side of things and taking a jump more towards the media side of the industry.
1: Yeah. And I mean, really ahead of their time, right? I mean, it's kind of what is happening now in in media where you have to have all these, you know, integrated channels and you're everywhere, but it sounds like Blue Torch really had that vision, much like almost like a, a Red Bull, if you will, but way back when, right? And maybe a little bit ahead of its time? Yeah, them and some other companies um, that kind of went after
0: it. I'd be surprised if I could even remember all their names right now. But Hard Cloud and there, there, were, there were a couple entities that really went for it at that time. And most of those failed. And it was the magazines more so adding a digital component that lasted a bit longer. And then, you know, ESPN has continued to grow. So some of the other media outlets did really... Did better with it, it's sad that you know Transworld you know, it was just within the last month probably that Transworld announced that they were done, so the media keeps changing um and I'd say that I was lucky in the fact that I made that move at that time, but that job only lasted three months, and then we all got laid off, so I don't know, maybe it wasn't completely lucky,
1: yeah, so you uproot your life, you move from you know kind of your where you're comfortable, where you have a great life, uh your dream job in Burton, you take a risk you are all excited, you're going to conquer the world, you have a budget, you're going to become a multimedia publishing giant in the snowboard (laughs) industry in three months, and it's over. What's that day like?
0: Well, there's also the getting there. Allison and I drove a U-Haul towing that same Volkswagen Jetta, got married in Vegas so that she'd have benefits. Um, I can really remember sort of that descent down the mountains as you go into Orange County and I I think I can diagnose it as a panic attack. I mean, we I left years in Vermont and then moving into San Clemente in Orange County and just uh, just total freak out about being in you know a place with that many people and that kind of thing. So Orange County in California was always a bit of an uneasy feeling for me. So you know when it ended, it was it was fear, but it was also a bit of a sign of relief. And just just started interviewing everywhere I possibly could and. Eventually ended up here in Colorado. Yeah. And what company brought you here? That would be Airwalk. It was cool. I interviewed for Transworld Magazine at that time and Solomon Ride Snowboards. There was a bunch. Every interview I could chase, I did. But then uh, I got linked up with Joe Babcock at Airwalk. Their team manager had just left actually to go to Burton. Small world. Small world in the snowboard industry. So I, I came out and interviewed with uh, with Joe and our buddy Styx and Linda Nylander. And I I think they, you know, Solomon and I had been interviewing for months and I was just like, you know, I was getting so frustrated. And is this ever going to end? And is this the kind of company I want to work for if they can't even make this decision? When they told me they were trying to hire, right? You get called in to interview for a position. And then 3 months later, they still haven't made a decision. Super frustrating. But Airwalk, I I talked to Joe on the phone. I think I flew out 2 days later and I think I had... A job offer within a few days after that, and they not only they they met what I asked for on the financial side, which still wasn't a ton, but it was you know it was a step in the right direction at that point in my life. But they also agreed to buy me a full new camera setup. Uh, that was something I asked for, you know. After getting burned by Blue Torch, um, I just felt like you know I, you know, I left there with kind of nothing, and I was like, I'm going to try to protect myself a little bit more on this one. But just Airwalk's commitment to you know, bringing me in and also kind of backing up my desires to not only be doing the sports marketing, but continuing to shoot as much as I could. Uh, I was sold and I was all in and it was uh, one of the best
1: small crews of people I've ever worked with. Yeah. And so like, take me back to that time. Like was Airwalk cool? Like what was that brand? Were you stoked to go there? Was it a chance? Like what was, what was the general perception of Airwalk as, as a brand? Because they were fairly new in snow at that time, right?
0: Well, no they airwalk had some big years where they believe uh, you know i don't have all the stats but i believe they outsold burton a f- couple years on boots they had some good years and then they completely screwed it up with some bad product and whatever airwalk had been through some serious downs already at that point the brand equity was i would say pretty low but there was a new ownership group that had taken over the the brand and the license and were you know they moved the company from Pennsylvania to Colorado. There's a lot of new people in place. So I I was concerned. I, I didn't feel by any means that Airwalk was this like glorious brand to go after. Uh that part felt risky. I liked what I heard about the direction they were heading and the team and the people I met, but it, it was an interesting step after you know, working for the dominant force in the industry I and mean, burden Burton, you know, had probably way more than 50% market share at that time and airwalk probably had, you know, 2%.
1: Yeah, and what I find really interesting, and, and you might already articulate it this way, but even throughout your career to this point, it's like all these jobs, really, you're a brand builder. And like, you know, whether or not you're a team tech, whether or not you're in the retail store, you know, you're working on a product for red, you go to, uh, airwalk. I mean, you're really a brand builder, but did you see yourself as that? Or did you realize that that was happening? Because in essence, that's what you were doing. And I know a lot of the, we can talk about maybe some of the fun projects you did at airwalk and some of the, you know, the the things you did to build that brand, but did you even think in those terms that, Hey, like I'm, I'm a brand builder. I'm a marketer. Or or like, how did you see yourself at that time? Airwalk
0: was the first point in my career where I think that my impact on the brand could be classified in any way like that. Um, you know, at Burton, I felt more like a hardworking employee and same with blue torch. You know, there were a lot of people there. They were, they were covering a lot of sports. So, I felt like I was trying to do the best I could with the snowboard coverage. But at Airwalk, uh, we were working with such a tight crew that all of us were... I mean, there were probably six of us that were 100% focused on snowboard. And then, you know, the rest of the people at the company were um, working on shoes and everything else also. But for that small crew of us, there weren't super clear lines between, you know... I'm working on product, you're not, or this is a sales issue, or we're going to have a sales meeting. Everyone was just all in. And so at that time was the first, uh, I think that was the first time I felt this like personal ability to help shift maybe the course of a, a brand just because I had, there were less people. And at that point I was global snow sports manager or something like that. Like, I had climbed a little bit, but it was mostly, too, that there were so few of us, we just had to do everything.
1: Yeah, and so what were some of the brand-building activities that you were doing at Airwalk? First, rebuilt the entire team because it was
0: kind of had fallen apart when the previous team manager left. Um, the position had been empty for about six months and six months is a long time um, as far as athlete contracts and stuff go. So the first part was just, you know, putting that team back together and then started running photo shoots. And I didn't shoot everything myself. We hired other people too, um, which also helped me to keep learning from all those guys, especially Stan Evans and Tim Zimmerman. Thanks guys. Uh, so, you know, it was a mix of all those activities, but, we started doing the catalogs ourselves and team videos and kind of everything. I mean, making stickers and, and you know, a bunch of the athletes were all super involved with me. Preston Strout and Zach Leach would come for, you know, a couple months in the fall each year. And we'd just sit and edit videos and do the layouts of catalogs. I mean, we would just scissors and paste and like glue our ideas together and then send them, sent them to the printing partner that we partner. That we had who would then turn that into an actual catalog. So, we were we were full hands on with every aspect of it.
1: Yeah, and you know you're you're having this amazing time at Airwalk. You've met amazing people that are still in your life and are you know great brand builders in their own right. And how how did Airwalk come to an end? Quickly, I
0: guess actually it was a slow, slow coming apart. But at that time. Airwalk was being funded by investment money and those investors, I think, wanted more money more quickly than was happening. And so, we started hearing rumors that things weren't looking great. I mean, obviously, I don't think Airwalk was self-sufficient at that time. It was still taking investment money coming in and they were building and there were a lot of things that were going right. But just because a business looks like it's going okay doesn't mean that it's actually making more than it's spending. And at some point those investors decided they didn't want to put any more money in. And in one day, I think 90 of us out of maybe a hundred got let go, but I wasn't there. It was kind of nice. Yeah. What was that day like? Uh, I was leaving for vacation with Allison. We were at the Denver airport. I got a call saying it was over. And then, uh, I called all the athletes, told them it was over, and then Allison and I left for a vacation.
1: That yeah, Was that hard? Was it hard making those phone calls or oh, yeah, that it was over? Yeah.
0: And it, we didn't know what was going on at that time. Uh, you know, all the athletes were still on contracts with salaries, with open expenses, and I didn't have a lot of answers. And I was lucky that I got reimbursed, but the athletes, I don't think they ever saw another payment on their contracts and any of them that had open Expenses that were contractually agreed to in a contract, they never got paid back either, which still super bothers me because, you know, if you're a 21 year old kid just trying to travel the world and be the best snowboarder you can, and a company signs a piece of paper with you saying that you have a $10,000 travel budget and you go and you do that work and then to not get reimbursed on that, because AirWalk didn't, a technical legal company, went closed down at that point, but then a new company took over the license and that's the way business goes. But the brand didn't die that day, but those contracts and all those obligations all did go down the drain and a lot of other vendors and stuff got burned also. And you you learn that as you get older, you see those things happen, but it, uh, it was painful to see it happen to the athletes that trusted
1: me. Yeah, and so you're sitting at the all-you-can-eat shrimp bar on your cruise, and you're hanging out and getting some... I mean, what are you going to do? Like, (laughs) like, What's the next move? Allison had finished her second...
0: Well, she'd already done her second degree. She had just finished her residency that she needed to do, and she got placed in New Jersey. So for that year, she'd been living in New Jersey. I was in Connecticut. I mean, uh, Colorado. And uh, she had just finished. I was back in... New Jersey, helping her pack up and drive back to Colorado. When we got that news, we already had our our little getaway planned. So we left for that cruise with me have just gotten laid off that morning. And I'm not sure if Allison had even started looking for a job in Colorado, but we were basically just both unemployed and on a seven-day cruise. Yeah. You know, we we told ourselves, we'll figure it out. Let's have fun. Let's enjoy this. But you can't. (laughs) We did, but you also are sort of like I don't, I don't know what we're doing when we get back.
1: Yeah, so you you ate unlimited poo poo platters. You come back, and then that like what's going on then? So you got to get your your button gear. I imagine you have expenses. Uh, I I remember when you know I've always been that age. It's like money runs out real fast, and getting a getting a job's fairly paramount. Like what are you doing to 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 make money and to keep things going?
0: I just at that point. I started the super hustle of chasing everything. Luckily while I was at Airwalk, I was shooting and filming a bunch and selling some of that to the athletes, other sponsors and Airwalk knew that. And it was, it was nice that I sort of had that ability. I was writing for the magazine some. So when, when Airwalk ended, luckily I had kind of my full camera kit at that point that I'd build up, built up and, I really started reaching out to those other brands that I had relationships with and hustling some of the imagery that I had already shot and selling some of that stuff. So that's sort of a bit of like assets in the bank. Right. Um, I had been doing a lot of work with Heli Hansen because some of my airwalk athletes were also on Heli. So we really start, start growing our relationship a bunch. I was doing a a lot of work for them. And, uh, But I also started, you know, I became a member of the Chamber of Commerce in Evergreen, Colorado. And I was also doing local work and, you know, I shot some real estate stuff and it just, I just did everything I could to hustle and try to make the commitment at that point that I wasn't going to go chase an in-house job again. I was going to try to do it
1: all on my own. So that was the moment that you were clear that like, Hey, I'm going to be a pro photographer.
0: Yes, except I was also trying to broker my services quite a bit as also sports marketing and team management help so it was it was a little bit of all of that. But I can remember talking to Gary at Helly Hansen and whatever I said I was I think I said, "Hey, do you think you're going to you know have the budget to buy $3,000 worth of footage off me or whatever because I had, you know, mini DV tapes and I had photos on slides and I was trying to get enough confidence to go buy a like a Mac computer. I remember that being a big decision. Like, how can I even sell this stuff if I can't edit it and whatever, but having to go spend money to make money was also super stressful at that time. But, you know, it was a couple of those, it was a couple of those people out there that kind of showed some commitment to wanting my services that helped me to make that next step.
1: Yeah. And then it, you know, you get going a little bit, you have some success. And at some point you reunite with an old friend from Burton in Colorado. Frank Phillips
0: and I, we, we were, we'd be, we we're super good friends back in Vermont. Uh, and Frank had bought a house and I lived with him and helped him fix that house up. So even back in the Vermont time, we were talking about, I mean, we we're just dreaming about every sort of different possibility of whether it was growing a business or chasing snow or just what we wanted to do. So, I mean, even though I was out in Colorado and at Airwalk for three years, We were talking about those things throughout that whole time. And then I was freelancing after Airwalk. Frank was done at Burton and freelancing in Vermont. And we just kept talking and talking. He'd come out with his family and uh, visit Colorado. And luckily, at a certain point, he just made the commitment. We didn't have really formal business going together, but he made the commitment to move his family to Colorado, which then gave us the ability to get more serious about chasing work together.
1: Yeah. And was it in Vermont or in Colorado where this idea of Hellbrook was born? Oh, I have a date when we wrote that. Yeah, it's, it's, it says 12 to 2000.
0: Yeah. So I wrote that first piece back in Vermont. Hellbrook is a backcountry snowboard line off of Stowe that we would, uh, all of us from Burton, you go and try to be the first one up there and hike it faster and get it first. So I think we sort of wrote this, this sort of pledge or this statement that we always just referred to as the Hellbrook statement, I think back in Vermont and it is, it is pretty similar to the quote that you opened with. Yeah. Will you read it? I think, I think if I could give this proper history, I'd say that I probably wrote something that was barely English first draft. And then Frank made it actually something that we can read now, but it goes like this written on December 2nd, 2000. Hellbrook has never been about a place. It's about a feeling, a philosophy, a goal, a friendship, new friendships, passion, fear, excitement, new challenges, failures that result in a desire to do better, a dream. It's about a life. It's about life and what we want out of it. Hellbrook is different to everyone, but our goal is to create an environment that helps everyone find his or her own Hellbrook. If Hellbrook is the same experience each time you go, then we have failed. Hellbrook cannot be static. Hellbrook is about getting up earlier, hiking harder, and faster to get there first. You could wait for someone else to come down and tell you that it sucked, but you would never hit the major score. If you get up first, hike faster only to find out it's not good. What should you do next time? Get up first, hike harder, and drop in first. There are many people along the way that help you find Hellbrook. Some may play only a small part, but you would never find it on your own. Welcome to our Hellbrook. Thank you. What's that mean to you? Fuck 20 years. Well, I think it means that uh, Frank and I and our families have, uh, you know, that I think we've been able to stay true to what we set out. And um, I think that's through good partnerships. And it's also through uh, being aligned on what we're trying to do and what bottom line means and that. Uh, We've always been driven by a quality of life, not, you know, trying to have the biggest business or the biggest agency or, you know, all those other things that come along with it, you know, that it has been about, I mean, yesterday I made a really hard decision yesterday morning and went snowboarding when I felt like I probably should have been doing a lot of other things, either business or family related, but that it's It's trying to cha- you know find that balance and make sure that you know life is driven by your passions and not just by kind of the pressures
1: of the world around you and and take take me back to like why did you guys even write this like who sits and writes a pledge and 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 works on this? What was the impetus to do that?
0: Yeah, I can tell you <laughs> so I'll have to show you the document sometime. I started a word document. And I've continued. I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? Because I probably started it in Windows ninety two or something. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> Green screen, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but I started this Word document for a couple different reasons. One, I was I was just consuming business books, and I'd get through a three hundred page book and feel like it distilled down to about three pages of really good info. But you can't sell a three page book, right? So, I would highlight those books, and then I would transcribe just the highlighted parts into this word document and same with Fast Company magazine and whatever else I was reading, or if I saw a good quote, I had a quote section and At some point, I just started adding some of my own thoughts and uh this was one of the things I wrote way back whenever it is just sort of a random thought I think it was it was also because Frank and I were starting to talk about you know what is this dream business. I was also working on my the last class that I finally graduated um, was writing a business plan, which more or less was the business plan for the Public Works and Battery 621. So it was a combination of all of those things, business planning with Frank, this kind of Word document of crib notes that I was just like, this is going to be my compiled reflect back on document instead of 40 books. And somehow this quote, you know, sat in that document. And we've revisited a few times, but, uh, I think we also realized that Hellbrook probably wasn't the best name for a business, but that, that's the story of how this got written. Um, December, I think I was still a bird at the time. I, I have to like really dig into my timeline to remember
1: exactly when what happened. Yeah. And talk about a creed or a mission statement, if you will, that stands the test of time. I mean, that really has, has lasted for you and Frank. And so kind of bringing it back to where you and Frank are and you're, you're doing some freelance work, you guys start working together. And at what point do you form this company that is now known as the public works?
0: I can't say exactly how long Frank had been in Colorado. It was probably at least a year or so. And he built a big shop at his house. We were kind of ramping up on more tools there. He was continuing to land design and engineering freelance work. I was doing a lot of uh, photography, multimedia, and also sports marketing. And our buddy uh, Styx, Steve Nielsen, he called us up. He was at Red Bull at the time and asked us to build this kind of Red Bull kind of premier brand piece that was going to be at a movie festival. So we, we designed and built that piece for Red Bull, and at that point, we weren't even the public works, um, but we, we just built and sold this piece to Red Bull, and then that kind of kicked off a bit more. We landed a p- pretty big project with Echo Mountain, which is a new kind of small terrain park mountain in Colorado, and the piece we were working on building for them was a very large park feature, think it ended up being a 3,000-pound more or less steel sculpture And we also built at this, we were working on this large archway to go over a racetrack for Red Bull. I think it was those two pieces where we were were finally set up the LLC and thought about getting a bit more serious. But it it was nice that it was this slow, slow buildup. Frank and I are both, I'd say, pretty conservative um, when it comes to financial risk or that kind of stuff. So it was this really slow buildup and it was more so the client work increasing that almost forced us to get more serious about launching an actual company.
1: Yeah. And real quick, just, uh, give us like the real quick, uh, cliff notes on Frank, like who is Frank? How did you meet him? What's his role, you know, in, in those projects, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. So when I first met Frank, I think we knew each other a bit, but, uh, I was working at Burton. I was still, must've been my junior year in college. I was living in a it was an animal house, right? I was still in with a bunch of college dudes and they were still very much on that path. I was getting a little bit worn out on it and I was working a lot and um, I was looking for a different kind of living scenario. And someone at Burton told me, go talk to Frank, think he just bought a house, maybe he's got some extra space. And so we, we knew each other at that time, but uh, I moved in with Frank into this probably 100 year old house he bought in Richmond, Vermont. Then, then from that point on, we were snowboarding together all the time, riding dirt bikes together, fixing up his house. I just kept most of the time I was just working to cover my rent. I was with Frank when he broke his back on a dirt bike. Our, we kind of met our now wives around the same time. And, uh, you know, for a bit of time, all four of us were living together in that house in Richmond. So it it's just been this long, long buildup. You know, nothing happened overnight. Frank's background is that he has a master's in engineering. So, while I was a bit of just a screw off at Burton, traveling with the team and uh, you know taking care of people and running the operations at Hood, Frank was doing some really heavy lifting of CAD engineering of new binding parts and tools and overseeing the prototype shop at Burton, which was like a whole machine shop. So we 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 both had this love for building stuff we were constantly out in his garage there in vermont um but his background in that area is much more formal
1: so where does the name public works come from so you and frank get together and you decide to incorporate and you know how'd you come up with the public works we kicked around a lot of different ideas
0: don't have that scrap of paper if there was one Um, our good buddy chauncey tanton was definitely in the mix Chauncey might claim that he dropped it. I'm okay with that if uh, if he did. But uh, we were working on. There was a series of different things, but we hit on the public works almost more as a as a sentence and a statement. This was this was before battery. I guess we'll get to that. But um, we had this strong feeling that the more we kept ourselves surrounded by the public or people or just being out doing the things we loved that we would be better at the stuff we were trying to create. And, you know, a lot of that philosophy comes from Burton where, you know, athlete roundtables and consumer round tables and gathering data out of Mount Hood and stuff like that was how product got developed. And, and that's the same way Frank and I wanted to work. We didn't want to just, you know, start a company and just hold ourselves away somewhere. Uh, we wanted to be, you know, in the mix on the front lines. And so the public works
1: was born so is, Cha- is chauncey like the third beetle
0: uh chauncey's just always been there <laughs> chauncey i'd say was more like the Cato kalin <laughs> Cha- chauncey should do your podcast because chauncey had this uh amazing ability to also chase his passions and I-, I think i was always jealous of chauncey because i think he did it in a much more carefree kind of way chauncey was a a pro athlete for Burton. And so we traveled together a lot and, you know, it's a long story, but he came to work for us, but Chauncey did this. He'd go from being beach bum to then go and get his MBA to be a beach bum, to go work and do financial advising. And, uh, yeah. And to this day, Chauncey, uh, he's one of those guys out there that just continues to, uh, lead a great life and be someone that you look forward to seeing the next, uh, social media post from. but he's been there a long time he was our first building manager of battery 621 and uh i mean he lived in our garage in orange county and yeah chauncey's i don't know if he's third beetle i hope there's i bet there's like 25 beetles but he's one of them
1: (laughs) (laughs) and uh so you and frank you're getting some projects you're doing you know working some really cool brands like red bull doing some other things you ever hit a point early on where you think it's not going to work? Uh, I don't think we ever.
0: Luckily, we kind of did the slow build and, you know, working for great clients helps to lead to working for other great clients. And, you know, that's not just because that, that you know, us saying we worked for Red Bull. Part of it was because Red Bull was pushing really amazing projects our way that, were premium, premium, either photo shoots or design build. And it wasn't easy money. We worked our asses off for it, but we worked hard and they gave us great opportunities, which opened some doors for doing work with Aspen and uh, bu- a bunch of others. But, um, you know, there's there's always challenges and you're trying to figure out growing a business and paying bills. But I, I think that we lucked out with such a kind of slow growth model that we didn't hit some of those same challenges that we hear some of our other entrepreneurial friends talk about who might do a large, you know, fundraising round and have two million dollars in the bank and then, you know, burn through it in a year and have to try to figure out how to re right? like re- re-raise funds or where do you go next and you have 30 employees. Frank and I just did a slow grind and you know, Ian was our, our third guy. And, and all of that was, we always grew the public works based off the pure, like we're not going to be able to do this next job unless we get some more help. So I don't, looking back, I think we were lucky that we didn't have one of those moments of I've got to go get a second job or are we going to pull this off? I think we just, we just kept our heads down and kept things fairly simple and didn't get over the tip of our snowboards or maybe that's just me gloss coding everything now, 15 years later, but, um, that's how I remember it. You should ask Frank.
1: Yeah, perhaps. I mean, like if we, if you can think about it, like what's, what was your most soul crushing day in those, in those times, if you can imagine, you know, what was that hardest day? Walk me through that one.
0: Uh, I mean, I think, a, uh, a really stressful time we had that Heli Hansen contract for a while it, it grew and that enabled us when they asked us to expand from, um, just overseeing snowboard to also overseeing ski. That's when we brought Ian on board. You know, that was a nice, that was a, it was a nice contract and it was a lot of work for us. Hell, he went through some big changes, kind of repositioning to sell and we could tell that was going to go away. And, and that was, that was really stressful. You know, that's, you know, a big chunk of your income. We we're lucky that around that time, Spider was really ramping up and that produced a new opportunity for us. And, um, it's always been our goal to, to really try to diversify with our clients. Cause my, my, one of my biggest fears is that we have some sort of, we don't want a single client change that forces us to have to change the crew that works for us or anything of that sort. You see that, you see that with big agencies, right? All the time, like a big agency loses a huge client and the next day, thirty people are gone. Some other agency lands that client and hires thirty people, right? And we've we've kept it a bit smaller and just trying trying to stay diversified so that we don't have those kind of uh, fluctuations.
1: Yeah, and. You did a great job and have done a great job and have built an amazing company in the public works. And you've diversified into fabrication and multimedia. You even have a, a library furniture line called Supple. You distribute Ridge Light. Uh, there's a lot of other things, but you know, you built this media basically a multimedia and fabrication business in the public works. And you know, focused on building brands and doing these big brand projects, but that wasn't enough. And you and Frank decided to build what is most likely Denver's first co-working space, where we're sitting right outside of back now behind, behind Battery 621 in an Airstream. How did that all come about?
0: We had talked about something bigger than an agency, even from the beginning. I think even when we were both still working at Burton... I can remember looking at property listings in Colorado, and uh, Frank and I and Megan and Allison all came out for Y two K to Colorado. That was, it was like one of those things where Frank found like ninety nine dollar plane tickets if we flew on Christmas Day or something. But we all we all came out to Colorado together, and even at that time, I can I can remember looking at some properties up in the mountains and thinking we're going to do this agency thing, but on a piece of land or with with more to it, more facilities. At, at that time, we were thinking it was going to be this, like a compound more out in the mountains where companies would come to to be creative and prototype and, you know, brand building or product building. I think as time went by, we were both living in Evergreen and the reality of where we needed to be to do business um, slowly got us looking more and more into Denver And because we built the whole public works working out of our houses and working out of Frank's shop, it's at his house. It still blows me away how much stuff we built out of Frank's neighborhood and that his HOA never shut us down. But we, we built really grassroots that way. Um, so for years we looked at buildings in Denver and just kept looking and kept thinking. We knew we wanted something that ideally wasn't just our agency. We wanted something the bigger that could have community around it, ideally be surrounded by other like-minded creative companies. Um, So we looked and looked and at some point I was explaining this dream to um, another industry, industry buddy that I knew Jason Winkler, whose business was up in Jackson hole at the time. And he told me that they were looking at making a move to Denver also, because they were kind of outgrowing their ability to run Wink Inc. out of Jackson hole. So it was just through that one casual conversation on the phone that we all started looking at buildings together. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another, uh, we bought a 30,000 square foot building. <laughs> yeah. When was that? What, what was the date on that? I think we're at eight years right now. It was the day after mother's day that we closed on the building. I think eight years ago, cause I destroyed my ankle the day before on a dirt bike that's why I can still remember I blew my ankle up on Mother's Day and we closed on battery the next day.
1: And and what was the building like at that time? Because, you know, now it's this really cool workspace and we'll post some pictures. You know, it's got polished concrete floors and it's, you know, this really neat place that was designed to be, um, you know, it's not really like your WeWork or any of these other buildings, but something more that really is about fostering collaboration and community but I don't think it looked anything like that when you took possession of the building, did it? No, we, we looked at a lot. I don't even know how many. We looked at a
0: lot of different buildings. This one started to really stand out because Frank and I were driving down from Evergreen, and this building sits on the corner of the first intersection. You really hit as you come down from the mountains. The first traffic light you hit as you get into Denver uh, battery sits on the left, and we kept driving past this intersection further into Denver. Um, but we weren't looking at buildings this large, um, uh, this building's 30,000 square feet, but this one started, it started to, you know, resonate with us. We'd already been talking to uh, a bunch of other companies about this sort of dream to pull, to pull a mix of businesses together. So when we saw this building and we started walking it, the crew from Icelandic skis came over with us uh, at that time their their showroom and offices were only a couple blocks away, and you know you know you've got true believers um and true friends and everything when they walked the building with us, when the guys from Spider walked the building with us, it was bad uh the place had sat empty for seven years. There were like encampments in the basement with hypodermic needles and all sorts of nastiness when the first time I brought Russ Rowan here from uh, from Spider, he was supposed to meet me at three o'clock or something. He was running late and said he wouldn't make it till six or seven. I can remember being like, oh shit. I mean, there wasn't even power in the building. I went to Home Depot and bought a couple of flashlights and was worried about his first impression. I was also worried about us getting, you know, jumped in the basement. Uh, this place, it was beat up. There was no HVAC, no power, no pipes. I think the homeless population had stripped every wire out of the place. So, when we started to put the plan together, there was the purchase of the building, but we put way more than that into the actual build out. We cut, we had to cut, I think, like 40 new windows and put in stairwells and grind cement and HVAC. And oh, well, the amount of meetings you go through deciding where every single plug and switch is going to go. It was crazy that for us, I mean, we went from working out of Frank's garage basically to taking on this 30,000 square foot building. Um, it was nice that you know the Winklers had a mix of different skills and understanding and knew more about construction and stuff than we did. So the biggest thing is once we committed, um, I mean, we had signed leases from some of those tenants before we even closed. And then once we closed and we had a promised date to be ready for Spider because they were having their global sales meeting with 300 people here, the best way to get something done is by having absolutely no other choice but to get it done that's what got us through this whole thing
1: i mean how how do you think that you could even do this i mean get into a big real estate project and and refurbish it and and make a run of it that's a pretty big pretty big vision
0: well you know me well and you know that i stress a lot and i don't handle stress that well it was one of the most daunting things that i ever thought about i mean for me us four owners, we just did a conventional loan. We had to come up with 25% down of the total project cost, buying the building and the construction. So 25% of that total cost. And then we had to split that four ways for me to even come up with that number. I mean, I rolled over my 401ks from Burton, from Airwalk, everything at that point that I'd saved. My parents helped out so that I could, you know, pony up my quarter of the investment. But I guess even before that happened, I can remember talking to Allison about it. I was stressing out just thinking about the whole thing and we're starting to crunch numbers. And What if you don't have full vacancy and you're going through every possible scenario? And I was, you know, totally like completely stressing out. I can remember Allison saying, "Just, just shut up already. You guys, you guys have been talking about this for 10 years. Just do it like she was so much more confident about it. And, uh, she was like, just don't lose the house. And I said to her, you know, like, this is, (laughs) this is all in, like, if this goes down, (laughs) we're losing the house. And, uh, and Allison's always so calm. She was just like, well, that's fine. We'll just get an apartment in Denver then. And we'll figure it out. And I've never had that, that demeanor. It's always been much more stressful for me, but I, you know, we were in over our heads, but you're surrounded by good people and people that believe in you and tenants that want it to work and you figure it out. And, and a lot of people along the way teach you and you make mistakes and you just keep pushing through it. But sometimes if you don't know how far in over your head you are, you're maybe got a better, better chance of getting back out.
1: (laughs) Totally. Totally. I I think that all the time. I wish I didn't know what I know (laughs) today. I'd be much more adventurous. Um, what don't we know, or what? what's hard about running a co-working space like Battery?
0: I don't think the co-working space is necessarily the, the challenges. Um, I mean, and when you want to get down to it, I think the bigger challenges are more, you know, financing and bank loans and permits and city stuff and whatever. I don't know that any of those are that much different because it's uh, co-working. It's probably why you see so many spaces happening now, because people think or see it as an easy solution that if you've got a building sitting empty, like, oh, we'll just do co-working and it's all going to work out or whatever. I mean, we, we've we tried to stay in front of some of those challenges by really trying to curate who the tenants are here and look for you know great people that are going to be a good fit and also a long-term fit and... I think that's something that we that makes Battery a bit bit more special. We're also we're probably less of a co working space and closer to an office building, but just a different kind of layout because everyone in our building has leases, really. So we're not we don't have a nomadic workforce coming through here. We have you know um, some companies have been here since day one so we're we're really trying to curate that we're you know you try so hard to keep competitive or if even lower than market rate because we want to be able to pick and have the companies come to us that we want to be in here, not necessarily because they're the highest paying or whatever
1: yeah, and I think that's the real magic of the space that it's a it's a curated community of of people and and you often say one plus one equals three, and I think that that really speaks to the, to the vibe at, at, at battery and, and what you guys are trying to do. Yeah. I mean,
0: how can, how can you put a value on, you know, just a lease if we have people and I'm not going to, I can't name everyone here. We have about 20 companies in the building right now, but you know, Chuck Sullivan and something independent have been here since maybe before we bought the building. I always tell Chuck one of my favorite photos is uh, the two of us sitting on the back of my Subaru signing his lease because battery was just a full-blown war zone of construction at that time. And that was, you know, Chuck and Johnny believing and committing. And then people like Dave Bacon and Keith at Zen Man and Marty at Sales Guys. Yeah, they pay leases and they enable us to keep this place running. But what they do for the brand of battery and for the community as a whole in Denver and Colorado and bigger, right? Like it's, it's so much bigger than that. It's hard to put that value on and we'll do whatever we can to, you know, to try to make sure that battery is the place that all of those companies want to stay. And ideally the only people we lose are the ones that outgrow our ability to give them more space because they're doing so well. That's our dream.
1: So something I've always wanted to ask you, we'll change gears a little bit. It was, What's the, what's the, your favorite photo that you've ever shot?
0: I don't think I can name a favorite. I don't even know if I can narrow it to 20. My head goes to, to so many different places. You love photos for different reasons too, right? You might love one photo because it's one of my favorite, you know, snowboarder ski photos. You know, I could name off some of those. There's one of Keir Dillon hanging right here in battery that I shot on that Burton trip to Chile. And so I look at that one and it reminds me of. I got this cool shot when there were five other photographers there and I happened to pick this angle and I got this shot and I still have that piece of film. And, uh, you know, that's special for a reason. Um, there's a shot I took out of a helicopter in Chile straight down, um, through the best skiers in the world. And we'd been shooting so hard on that trip. I think Ian and I shot 20,000 photos on that 14 day trip. And I usually stay on top of editing, but I had shot so many photos that day that it wasn't for a few days later when I started going through them all. And it was just, it was just a spot in the time that I didn't expect to be that cool. But the three skiers were right under the helicopter, the shadow of the helicopters in the frame, the arcs of the skiers turns are just art in of themselves. And, you know, so that one, that one's always been one of my favorites, but I mean, there's, there's other photos that I might love because of the memory or the, time that it happened. I have one of Sean White standing at the top of the Breckenridge halfpipe when he couldn't barely even see over the fencing, you know. He's probably 10 or something at that time. Um, and I just I, I just feel lucky that I got to stand there at that point and then uh, get to watch, you know, everything he's accomplished. But, you know, there's photos from family vacations and I, I've shot, I mean, our database is close probably to a million photos right now. I don't know how many times I've actually pressed the shutter, but it's it's in the millions. And i don't know i just i love having a camera in my hand
1: mm. yeah and i think that's what's always so great about photos is it doesn't have to always be the best composition or it doesn't always have to be in focus or it really just takes you back to a moment you know and there's so much to those to those moments that are so special to us and the way to capture that story and and, and take us back and, and allows us to relive it in a way that nothing else does
0: yeah and you know, people, you know, I, I appreciate that we get a lot of compliments on our photos or our work or whatever. And it, sometimes it's just, we shoot more and you have the camera with you more. And maybe you make a bit of effort to go get that photo when other people don't, you know, and, and actually do something with them after, because yeah. a lot of people take a lot of photos and never go back through them or sort them or touch them up a little bit. And, you know, it's, there's a lot more to it than just pressing the button. So,
1: yeah. And for me, like it just struck with me, you know, I've been, I think I might share this with you. I've been personally a little bit obsessed with my own mortality and I'm kind of going through that. And I think that, you know, what taking a photo does is it allows us to stop time, you know, and and there's something that's really profound and, and magical about that and allows us to go back and and just stop that ticking clock. And uh, remember like how precious life is and, and, and what those moments are. And and even sometimes when we're, in those moments, we're not always appreciating them as much as we do when we look back. And I
0: think what's, what's great when a bunch of time goes by and I, and I see this, whether we're going back to our imagery and editing or labeling or looking for shots, but also, you know, we just had the opportunity to film with a family who went around the world with 110 other people in 1963, um, on a, a legendary around the world caravan was Airstream. This family uh the father, was hired by airstream to be the the journalist, and he wrote a book about the trip. He passed away about a year ago, but you know we just got to spend time with the mother and the three kids and you know they're pulling out photo albums, and one of the kids was only one you know a year old on the trip, so she says that she can't remember the trip, but her memories are all based on either hearing stories or seeing the photos to which point, and even the kids that were a bit older you know they they're not hundred percent sure now whether they're remembering the actual what happened or remembering more the memory now created by looking at the photos. So, I mean, you'd look back through those, all these years later, and uh, you also realize it's, you know, it's cool to have photos of the pyramids in Egypt or, you know, other famous landmarks or beautiful scenes. But what really stands out is it's, it's the shots of the people and some of the other stuff that was happening that are those super, super memories. When I look back at, you know, some of my older photography from say when I was shooting at Burton, if I look at most of the action shots, I'm like, oh, it's, I mean, it's not that, it wasn't that great of an action shot then. And it sure doesn't hold up to, you know, the level of snowboarding and photography now. But if I see a photo and it's, you know, a group of us partying at the Burton house at Mount Hood, you're like, oh man, there's Ross and there's Zach. And, Oh shit, there's Amy who's doing this job now. And you realize it's like it's some of those uh those moments that you didn't think were as important at that time
1: are that are the super memories now. Yeah. So Mike, what are you most looking forward to next? What's what's next for Mike Arts? Yeah, this
0: this is a struggle for me because uh I feel you have this this mix of uh as you get older, things may be I wouldn't say just get more complicated. I think there are just more things and more opportunities. So you get hung up one minute on trying to be the best parent possible or a good friend to your friends or grown a business or should it be chasing the next awesome trip or pow slash. And I think unfortunately sometimes one gets in the way of the other, right? If, if I maybe got a bit more serious, uh, Maybe there'd be another battery now or maybe our business would be bigger and I wouldn't have to work so much because we'd have more people working. I don't, I don't really know. So I think that's the biggest challenge of, you know, do you go away for a week with your family and do something cool or do you hunker down and work twice as hard hoping that then that creates an opportunity where you retire two years earlier? I mean, we're lucky that we're in this business group called EO because... I think we get to hear all these stories of different entrepreneurs trying to make these kind of decisions. And sometimes you have control and sometimes you don't and the decision gets made for you, right? So I think my biggest decision is, do I want to grow up and get more serious about working harder or do I want to get more serious about uh, blurring those lines between work and play? And the last thing you want to do is make a mistake and have some FOMO, right? That FOMO can be buying a building or not going snowboarding.
1: Yeah, the FOMO <laughs> is real and it is powerful for sure.
0: Like FOMO and stress is uh what's helped me to be successful and probably both of them are seem like negative things but they're also uh they help push you, right?
1: Yeah, no, it's so hard to miss out on, on on all those opportunities and it's it's really difficult. So what would uh if you ran into your 20 year old self today, what would he say? What would he think of what you got going on? Maybe some of those questions that you just posed?
0: Yeah, so at twenty, I was traveling. no, maybe not. I was probably just kind of ramping up to a slightly more legitimate career at Burton. At that time, I couldn't even believe that I was working for that company or part of my job involved snowboarding. I don't think I could have ever seen. What I would consider this level of success now, of like having pulled off battery, and be surrounded by such amazing, amazing companies and people and that kind of thing, with public works, I, I probably could imagine that Frank and I would figure something out and scrape by. But I don't think I could have imagined that um, you know companies like Levi Strauss and Whole Foods and Subaru and Jeep and Aspen. Airstream uh, would give us the opportunity to help elevate their brands. Uh, I love, I love brands especially brands with great people and great stories. Um, So I I couldn't even imagine some of that stuff, like the the ability to go and film and listen to the story of a family that went around the world for 14 months in an Airstream in 1963. I couldn't even had a wild dream that
1: would have involved something like that. So Mike, you know, professionally speaking and, you know, looking at your work with the public works right now, what are you most proud of?
0: We're, we're trying hard to look at, we've been working for years on tightening up our core values and our mission statement. And a bunch of that relates to kind of how we are being to our community and our environment. So we're, I feel so far off compared to other companies, um, like Patagonia, but at the same time, it's awesome that there's companies setting such a high standard. so we've made we've made goals for ourselves and we're gonna keep trying to get better it's It's awesome right now that Ian's looking into um, doing carbon offset credits that we build into job costing when it involves travel and that kind of thing. Um, but you know we've made a pledge from our media team that whatever uh, the nonprofit uh, it's a denver-based organization called first Descent. um any way that we can possibly help them especially from a multimedia standpoint that we will um first Descent does life-changing adventure trips for young adults affected by cancer and now also ms last year this uh, was well, so first off i went and volunteered at a camp and uh my parents went along which was maybe one of the best things i've ever done with my parents and as you know, it was cool. Mark and his wife were there the week before. So we kind of got to not only double header that, but kind of both be affected at the, at the same time and in big ways, right? Which y- y- you can read about it and you instantly believe in it. But when you go, there's, there's no turning back. Uh, so that led to our team going and capturing uh, their MS pilot program last year. And that was uh, a lot of that footage was used on CNN to talk about First Descents and the work they're doing. Um, So then, once again, you see this just amazing, amazing opportunity. And it shows, I mean, it shows what the outdoors can do for people. It shows that it's not just about the outdoors, but it's about the challenge of the outdoors, bringing people together closer and in very quick and powerful ways. It shows us, once again, what capturing content can do, because if we weren't there capturing it, and how do you share that those stories to the bigger world so it feels special to have a skill set that helps elevate those kind of programs i mean what what's so amazing to me is that was already a huge win right we got to go shoot this this program but then uh we were just together working with uh, thor industries who is the largest manufacturer of rvs in the world they own airstream as well as jayco and a bunch of other brands so what really lit mine entrepreneurial fires was, was the fact that, you know, initially going and volunteering at this program with my parents and becoming more involved and then going back and more or less shooting the MS program pro bono for FD. um, You know, it all felt like social, good social stuff. And by all means, you know, we're helping other people, but in selfish ways, it, it, it does amazing things did amazing things for me going too, So, you know, it was a, it was all sorts of different things, but then, you know, recently we we're able to show that MS, um, short film to one of our clients and have them get on board with what could potentially be one of the biggest content series that we're going to shoot, which is, you know, all about outdoor healing and, you know, the people making those things possible. So if doing volunteer work and putting our skills to use can then lead to profitable work. I mean, I can't imagine a better outcome. And, and I I hope we can continue to look for more ways to do that because it's, it's such a win, win, win for everyone involved from, from the participants at the programs to the nonprofits, to the companies that get on board and align with those causes and push, you know, resources and time into them. I mean, to me, that's, some things in the world actually clicking right instead of, you know, just so much of the negativity and shit that you hear these days.
1: Yeah, it's like the perfect alignment of commerce, social good you know, putting your talents to work and doing the things you love. It's, it really is the the dream scenario. And it's funny when you're talking about the Burton slideshow, uh, and seeing your slides up there, we were just recently at the first ascents ball and, uh, Brad Ludden, who is the founder of first ascents has appeared on this podcast in season one. And, uh, one of my photos from last year at a climbing program came up and I just felt, you know, such, you know, amazing pride and joy. And, but also it took me back to that moment and it was quite emotional and uh, remembering those participants in that program. And so just when you're able to do those types of things. And uh, I think for both Mike and I, you know, First sense has been an amazing experience and it's only been elevated by the ability to to blend what we do professionally and bring them into the mix and continue to expose other people and organizations like Thor Industries, you know, and, and to see them light up. I mean, I think that might be one of the biggest gifts. You were just on a shoot in Joshua Tree and was, we were working with our point of contact there and, you know, hearing how she came to the experience and lit up that, you know, just to spread that and to, to bring more people to that mission, uh, while performing your, your occupation. I mean, that's, that's really living the dream.
0: Yeah. And it, it it also opens up other thinking that you wouldn't expect. Um, we just had, you know, something cancer related come up in our, in our close immediate family. And, you know, first to sense was the first thing I thought about was I have this whole network of people that I can reach out to now, whether this family member needs help or even if I just need help, advice on how can I best support this person. Um, so, it also showed me, you know, that's with, you know, oncology or MS, but it, it just makes me want to look for all those additional opportunities. Um, you know, we obviously have a homeless problem here in Denver and I want to get more involved. I want to understand more and I want to be part of the solution, not just complaining, right? So, you know, being part of First Descent really, really opened up so many different lenses of looking at something like that, that, you know, it it wouldn't have happened um, without
1: that opportunity. Mike, thank you so much. That was amazing. And uh, thank you for sharing your story.
0: Pleasure. And uh, yeah, hit up Wild Story and Let's keep this conversation going. I'm sure there's a lot of things that we didn't get into that we'd be happy to push on in in an online format. (laughs) Thanks, everyone.
1: Bye. And that's Mike Arts. It's important to realize and recognize this isn't one of those, I started a business and exited and now I'm filthy rich stories. This is the story about an individual falling in love and finding the flow with life and the work. And that's something I think we all can learn to do a little bit more. Thanks, Mike. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. A lot of big stories and I cannot lie, you other storytellers can't deny, baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business.